This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Madeline Ryan, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Madeline is an Australian writer, director and actor. She's been widely published in Australia and overseas, including in the New York Times, Lenny Letter, Bustle, The Age, The Daily Telegraph, Vice, SBS and The Sydney Morning Herald. She currently lives in rural Victoria. A Room Called Earth is her first novel, explores a young neurodiverse woman's magical, sensitive and passionate inner world. Now, Extraordinary because this book came to us through a young man that works for me, Dex. He read it and he came into the office one day and he said, Cheryl, we've got to do something with this book. We've got to tell people about it. And so we then included it as part of our copyright agency, Cultural Fund Funding. And I'm really, to me, it was very heartfelt coming from a young man. Mm, Totally. I love that. I mean, I think it's very important that... Well, it's important to me that the book speaks to as many people as possible across all different categories of existence. And so if it can reach Dex, wherever he is doing whatever he's doing, that's that's the perfect thing. Because I do see it as quite an expansive story in its, in its subtle way. So I love that. I do too. I love it. And I'm going to say, I try not to talk about the visual appearance of a book on a podcast because for obvious reasons, <laughs> however... <laughs> It is beautiful and it's got a beautiful cover and beautiful gate folds. And not all books get this treatment. So it's just, it's a beautiful book to read and to hold. And I think that that's, you know, it's a gift. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, Scribe treated it with such love. It feels like a, like a gemstone or like a treasure chest of goodies to hold and to look at. Like I keep seeing new details that I'd missed, you know, before. And it's like, yeah, it, they really treated it with love and sensitivity. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you can see that definitely in its production. Okay. So I want to start at the beginning. I mean, your experience is quite diverse. And then when I was doing some research around you, um, it said that you were diagnosed with autism while you were writing, which means that that's kind of happened in later life. So take me right back to where you grew up and how you came to writing. Yeah. So I grew up in a household with journalists. My parents are both critics. I grew up around a lot of books and literature and everything, but I was convinced I was not a writer and that writing wasn't who I was. I wanted to be an actress. So I did study, I did I did an arts degree at Melbourne University and found myself doing a lot of literature and creative writing, but I sort of still didn't put two and two together, but they're the subjects I always gravitated toward, largely because they didn't have exams. <laughs> and they took it took me about eight years to finish that degree. But anyway, I digress. I mainly was focused on acting and doing a lot of theatre and I studied acting and that was kind of at the the centre of my awareness for a really long time. And then 
I kind of finished uni and I was doing some acting and I worked all different jobs, doing all kinds of things. And then my partner and I decided to move to the country. We, we did that. We moved to rural Victoria and we adopted animals and all these kind of life changes happened. Like we started eating plant-based and I stopped taking the hormonal birth control pill, which had a huge influence on my mental and emotional sort of well-being. And I started writing. I found myself drawn to, you know, writing articles about different things that I kind of cared about. And I realized how much that, how easily that flowed. And although I loved acting, there was always a sense of something kind of, I was forcing something and I was never fully satisfied by the experience of playing a character, even though I loved it. And I loved being part of like a a different world. It never quite gave me that sense of flow and joy that I started to discover through writing. I mean, I'd always kept journals, but I'd never seen it as sort of a central aspect to who I was. I guess um, with um, with acting, you're not really the storyteller, are you? You're the conduit for the story. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, I feel a similar way with, with writing, especially with this book. It felt like I was kind of a conduit for another world on in some ways, but it was kind of, I was able to more fully realise it. Whereas, yeah, when you're an actor, you're kind of, I guess, to some extent at the mercy of literally another human being's interpretation or vision of a story, whereas to actually create the world of the story, you kind of get, it's, you know, more control in in a way and you get to realise it on so many different levels. It's not just the one piece of the puzzle. So, yeah, I, I started to feel very liberated through the process of writing and kind of, I think it must have been, uh, yeah, I was, I was already six months into writing when all these things were going on kind of with my family and with communicating that led to the the diagnosis of being autistic. But yeah, I was a good six months in. And the point where I started writing the book kind of, I I'd thought about writing a book and I was visiting my parents at, you know, in my childhood home and I was standing in my childhood bedroom and my mum had her book group going in the next room. Um, and I'd sort of gone in and said hello to all the all the women there and whatever. And I'd sort of excused myself and gone to my old bedroom. And then I just started hearing this very certain, very clear kind of voice come through. And I was like, wow, this feels fun, whatever this is happening. And I kind of sat down and wrote down, you know, and it was the first lines of the book, which are still the first lines of the book. Wow. And I just yeah, went on an adventure from that point with her and it's ended up here talking to you <laughs> with this little gemstone of a book. Talk to me about the autism. I'm finding it hard to wrap this around my head that you've lived your entire life to this point and, you know, quite successfully and then you get this diagnosis now. Talk me through that and how you got there. Yeah, so I guess as a context for that, there is not a lot of information about autistic girls and women. There's more coming out now and how, you know, autism manifests in uh, women. But obviously when I was growing up and up until probably the last couple of years, really, there just has been nothing about what that looks like, what that feels like, what that sounds like in a girl. So no one would have suspected it. I was also a very creative kind of dynamic little only child who was very happy being left to her own devices. So no one, I guess, suspected anything. You know, I would find ways to contribute to social situations that were 
kind of creative and like I would analyze people's behaviors and find the patterns in them. And lots of girls would come to me wanting to know why the boy that they were interested in texted them this or that. And I would then analyze the behavior and break it down and figure out the patterns and kind of create a role for myself through what I've subsequently learned are hugely autistic ways of not only relating, but thinking. So I kind of managed with what I had and who I was, although, you know, I constantly felt like I couldn't keep up and that I wasn't doing like meeting criteria correctly. That was a constant thing that let's define autism. Tell me what that is. And then talk to me about the difference between male and female. Well, it's sort of difficult to talk about it. Like, how do I define autism? I guess it's just a different kind of brain wiring and a different way of processing experiences, thoughts, feelings, sensory experiences, and a different way of, yeah, interpreting the world compared to a neurotypical person. And I suppose I see autism as the heightened sensitivities of everybody else to a degree, like what an autistic person has at the forefront of their awareness in terms of what they're sensitive to is what a neurotypical person will kind of not really think about and just do on autopilot, you know, in a social situation or when they've got to sort of get things done. It's like, they're not really questioning the things that an autistic person is very conscious of, like the hideous fluorescent lighting in the supermarket and having to also choose which product you want and the dealing with the people around and the noise and the, all the things that can then lead to this kind of sense of overstimulation in an autistic person. A neurotypical person will just be like, well, I just need to go to do the shopping and then leave. Is it sometimes interpreted as anxiety? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, the amount of times that I was sort of, I I mean, I was seeing therapists and things for years and I was constantly being diagnosed as like, yes, anxious, overly sensitive, finds it difficult to adapt, depressed. You know, I had disordered eating patterns. Like I I had the whole gamut of like descriptions for what I subsequently learned was autism. And I think, I think autistic people play a very important role in highlighting a lot of things that are overlooked and that need to be addressed for the betterment of everybody's experience on this planet. But I guess more broadly, that's the role that I see autistic people having. And I mean, the differences between girls to boys, you know, I, I don't really know. It's becoming a lot more diverse I think the definition of autism, because I think there are a lot of autistic men that I've come across who are also not being diagnosed or who are also not being recognized because even how it manifests in them is not that they're counting trains and that they're antisocial, you know, or not Mm. counting trains, but like, you know, studying trains and being engineers and being antisocial, they're, they're creative or they're, you know, I mean, I find it really interesting. I can't believe that I'm bringing up Rain Man, but I did watch Rain Man and I was convinced that the Tom Cruise character who is the brother of the Dustin Hoffman character who is technically the autistic one is totally autistic. And it's like no one realises it because everyone's focused on the nonverbal, you know, guy who's, what what's he doing? He's like, oh, he's like reciting the phone book or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, but the Tom Cruise character is obsessed with salesmanship, obsessed with his look, has very rigid routines and rituals and is blatantly socially masking, you know, and I think that constantly gets overlooked. And I think that that, from what I've witnessed, that's very true of the male experience of autism and the world is discovering and I'm discovering that women are even more concealed because technically or in theory, we're wired to be more 
like social and to kind of want to uh, make everybody's experience nice and to sort of fit in in a way that in theory men are better at compartmentalizing and kind of doing their own thing and not being as affected by whether they're being liked or not. And I think you could dispute that probably hugely but at the same time I can also see in myself that that desire to be liked and to fit in kind of overrode a lot of my natural instincts as an autistic woman. Like I ended up in a lot of situations that I would, was terribly uncomfortable in, but I wanted to fit in and I wanted to please and I wanted to be a part of what the group was doing. So I would just persevere at the expense of my sanity and my, yeah, my well-being. And that paid a, a price, you know, I paid a price for that, that I learned about in time and I can see more clearly now, but I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it does. It does rolling helps me to understand it as well, and I'm sure it helps our listeners. So mm. tell me the path to diagnosis. How did that happen for you? And it must have been quite recently. Yeah, it was three or four years ago now. But prior to that, probably three or four years before that, I was friends with these two magical women, one of whom I met at acting school, and we would spend long afternoons together talking and eating and, you know, sitting with their cat and their candles and just for hours I could talk to them, you know, and this was a very unusual experience for me because I would spend long periods of time with different friends, but I would often come away feeling drained or overwhelmed, not because the person was toxic in any way, just because it was so overstimulating sort of having to manage someone else's brain wiring and find space for myself. I'm better at it doing that now, I think, managing that now and understanding it now. But back then it was really draining. But with these two women, it was just a breeze and I didn't feel drained. And I sort of said to them once, I was like, you know, this is extraordinary. Like I, I, I don't really have this experience with anybody else that I can just be and not feel completely wrung out by the end of it. And um, one of them sort of said to me, well, Madeline, that might be because you're autistic like we are. Wow. Wow. I know. And I was like, oh, okay. I had no idea what really that meant or what the implication, you know, the ramifications of that was. I've subsequently learned that that's often the experience that autistic women are having is that they're being technically diagnosed by other autistic people before they go on to receive a diagnosis themselves if they choose to go down that path. But in that moment, I really didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know what to do with the information and I kind of forgot about it in a way. It was like, okay, well, that's there. I don't really know what to make of it. And then it took a few years and a communication breakdown with my family where like, they had certain social expectations that I didn't feel comfortable meeting and we couldn't kind of bridge the gap and there was a lot of tension and I kind of said, look, you know, part of this might be because I could be autistic. And they were like, what? You're what? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, I think. I don't really know, but maybe we could go through the process and just see, you know, and so then we went through the diagnostic assessment process and I did all the tests online and all the different things. And yeah, so I, you know, and then I was officially diagnosed and it was a huge, I guess, turning point in understanding myself and making sense of a lot of experiences that had been very 
traumatizing in lots of ways growing up socially, especially, and understanding why I felt drained and knowing that there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just wired differently was a huge, huge step in kind of reclaiming parts of myself that I think I'd um, lost touch with. And the book kind of ran alongside this in this beautiful way. And I didn't immediately think that the protagonist was autistic. It kind of didn't occur to me. I just kept writing because she kept coming out and I was enjoying that process. And then one day it just kind of very quietly dawned on me when I was sitting outside with a cup of tea or coffee and I was looking up at the trees and I was like, well, if she's, you know, it's in the first person, so it's all inside her mind. And if I'm harnessing the way that I think and process information and observe people and create patterns and I'm using that to create her mind, then she must have a neurodiverse mind as well. And I was like, whoa, that feels really trippy and really huge. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I guess it's writing what you know. That's got to be it. It's just an extension of, yeah, what I know. But when you're so intimately inside the mind and if that mind has just been, you know, technically diagnosed as being neurodiverse, it's like, well, I guess it fits that category. It didn't change anything really. Like as I kept writing, she just kept coming out. If anything, she helped me to embrace even more aspects of who I am and how how dynamic and fabulous I think autistic people are and can be, especially when they celebrate who they are because she's such a testament to that. Like she just loves being alive and feeling the way she feels and thinking her thoughts and, you know, reflecting on things and observing people and even challenges kind of, she gets this rich sort of experience out of grappling with things, you know, and I, and I found that so liberating alongside this kind of personal process I was going through. So yeah, the book is kind of entwined with all of that, but at the same time it was it was already in motion and its own universe at the same time. So you know, yeah. we've got this fabulous person that works in our office. Actually, I think everybody that works here is fabulous. <laughs> and I, I, I really mean that every time I come in, I just think how lucky we are to have this team. But she always says that well, she said recently that autism in her family is considered a gift. Mm. And I love that. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with that because the more that I've learned about it and about myself, the more that I see that 
what an autistic person is struggling with, if they honour that, it helps everybody. Mm. It helps everybody. There's no, it's extraordinary really to witness it, you know, when an autistic person kind of is like, oh, this is too much for me or I don't feel comfortable with that. It's amazing how many other people in the room or in that situation will be like, oh, yeah, that's actually a relief if I don't have to do that. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's actually a relief if we just, you know, dim the lights a bit and Mm. Give ourselves some quiet. She also time. calls it a superpower too. Yes, which I love. Oh um, yes, yeah. Uh, did moving to the country and giving up city life? Do you think that that was entwined in the diagnosis, or was it just something that? I mean, did that take the pressure off you, and did that clear your head and give you space to write more? I mean, what impact yeah. has that had on your life? Yeah, everything. Uh, it's mm. all connected, definitely. I think everything is very multifaceted, but a huge part of all of that was absolutely getting away from the city and the demands of the city, the pace of the city, the noise of the city, the expectations of the city to kind of clear that away and to be left with nature and my partner and some animals. I just saw the greyhound in the background. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just walked yeah. in and plonked itself on the floor. And, oh, yeah. I love that. He's gone to the sun, yeah, <laughs> to kind of confront myself within the stillness of that absolutely cracked open everything, was part of everything cracking open and being able to actually see myself and hear myself and feel my feelings away from a lot of that kind of overstimulation was was massive. I mean, and I have a better relationship with the city now. I think visiting it, I appreciate it more and can kind of manage it better, but it certainly took moving away from it for an extended period of time and immersing myself in the in the stillness. And apparently a lot of autistic people are very drawn to that. You know, no, it makes a lot of sense to me, but unfortunately some people wouldn't have those resources to do that. Mm. But, you know, yeah. I mean, the city is overwhelming for non-autistic people. You know, it's just an overwhelming place. It's lit yeah. up, it's busy, it's traffic, and it's getting worse, I think. So yeah. I, it, that makes sense to me, to really start to make sense of, of yourself sometimes. You have to move away from it. Yeah, Definitely. And then it kind of over time, I think, becomes a dance with it. Like now I'm spending, a, you know, well, when it's obviously the city's not in lockdown and locked mm. behind a ring of steel, um, I, I've really enjoyed moving between the two landscapes and kind of testing myself, you know, and testing how well I know myself and how I can manage that kind of overstimulating environment, which I'm learning is is more possible than I originally thought. You know, I've been through phases where I was like, I'm never going back to the city. I never want to set foot there again. Oh my God, it's too much. I don't know how everyone's doing it. It's just mad. Everything's mad. Everybody's mad. What's going on? Whereas now I kind of, I've probably softened a bit and I have more compassion for the city and more sensitivity toward it again. Although the book, you know, is this interesting celebration too of the city, but also of the landscape that contains the city, you know, and and I find that very very dynamic and very interesting how cities are on the earth. It's so easy to sort of forget that they're they're a landscape, they're part mm. of the planet. It's sort of they create this kind of parallel reality in some weird way where you can feel very disconnected from the reality of 
being on the earth somehow. And yet they're a character and they're a place and they're so Mm -hmm. formative, you know, in so many ways. I was just reading Gabriel Byrne's book, you know, the actor, and he talks about feeling displaced being in New York because it wasn't the landscape that he knew, that wasn't Mm -hmm. Dublin. And he talks about how he feels, for him particularly, that the place formed the person that he is, really. And that's profound, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, I was in the city for the book launch and I kind of spent a week and was, I I love going for runs around the Botanic Gardens and things like that. And I was doing all of that and feeling like, wow, I I am a product of this place. Mm -hmm. And this book is a product of this place. And it feels so intimately entwined with who I am, even if it's like tormented me at different times. It's like, wow. Well, it's your relationship with it, right? Yeah. We really are a product of where we've what what we've soaked in as we've kind of evolved. Do you miss any of it? Uh, Oh, no, not really. I don't miss it. Although if I could never go back to it, I think I would be devastated. But no, I don't. I mean, I guess because so much of my creative life flourished away from it, it doesn't give me... I suppose a lot of the things that I value most in a way, but at the same time, if it wasn't there, I would be devastated because the city is such a beautiful place to learn about people and about what people are thinking and feeling and how they're operating in those environments is very fascinating to me. But no, I mean, I don't, I don't miss it because I've been so nourished by what's emerged through the process of, of leaving it. And I've made so many amazing connections with people through leaving it, I guess, because in some ways I reclaimed what felt good to me to contribute to society in some ways. Like I discovered what gave me joy and then I began to share it. And from that, I created connections with people and I've I've rarely ever felt isolated out here. I mean, I also have my partner here. I don't know how I'd go if I'd been literally on my own the entire time, kind of like a, mm. you know, a hermit on the hill, like writing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, having him here probably is a huge part of it feeling comfortable, but everything so, has its role. It does, mm. doesn't it? And, and mm. everything. I feel as though that everything we experience sets our path forward. I mean, I think that's what it is for me and it's just clearing the way for where you're moving next, you know. I just want to ask you about writing. Like um, you had been writing for a while and you'd been writing short form in a way, you know, you've been writing articles. And and so to go from that to writing a whole book, did you think of it like that or you just started writing? Like did you think, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to be writing, you know, 50,000 words, 60,000 words? Or how did you approach the project? You said it just came to you. But at some point did you think, okay, well, I'm sitting down now and I'm writing this book? Yeah, I definitely had to keep choosing it. Like I had to keep choosing giving it space, you know, and at the time I was writing articles as well and it was kind of this push-pull between the the instant hit and the validation and the bit of cash and the feedback from an editor and all of that and the rush of that and then I would kind of go back into the novel and I was sort of in the abyss, you know, with it and with myself and it was a very different sort of muscle to work, but I just had to sort of keep choosing it and giving it space and letting it unfold, which was so nourishing. Like even if I didn't get that kind of instant hit, it was like this much deeper, much richer experience and it felt much more expansive inside me to sort of 
move into that every time I did. So it became something I wanted to sort of go to and nurture on a regular basis. And I started to find it even more rewarding than the articles. And then that was the whole thing. It was like, oh, you know, but I need the articles to keep contributing, but then, you know, but this in the long term will could contribute so much, but will it, will anyone care? Will it, you know, what will, you know, it was like, there was lots of unknown with the novel, I guess, that I had to sort of sit with and allow for and and all of that. And I, I think I probably got to a point where I was like Googling, like how many words does this need to be to like be legitimate? Because <laughs> um, I mean, I had studied literature and creative writing and things. I wasn't sure the best form for it to take, how long it needed to be. Like that's, it, it kind of decided for itself in the end, you know, I think in my mind, I, I did edit like there's a document with sort of 50 or 60,000 words that weren't actually included in what's there now. So that happened, but it was like it very much decided how long it was going to be. And initially it didn't have any chapters. I mean, it all just came out in one big kind of stream of consciousness thing. But then I I started to feel like it was probably nice to give people breathers between the different observations and ideas because I was finding reading over it quite intense. So I was like, I need these breathers too. So then I just let that guide me as to how to kind of lay it out in a way. So it kind of instructed me, but at the same time I had to discipline myself to keep listening to it and creating space for it. Absolutely. Mm. And will there be a second yet? (laughs) (laughs) there will definitely be more novels not like a not like a sequel to this one but there'll there'll definitely be more I mean it's feels like a part of me now you know creating these worlds and and yeah relishing in them and expanding on them and being guided by them I I adore it well we do too it's called a room called earth Madeline Ryan thank you so much for your time today thanks so much for having me Cheryl it's been great If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.